Hey Changemakers, welcome to another episode of the Sacred Changemakers podcast. My name is Jane Morillo and I have another great guest lined up for you today. Now this podcast is about change and transformation, but not just any old change. We believe in change for good, which lies at the intersection of three things, personal, professional and social transformation. So come with us on a journey as we go behind the scenes with people who are making a real difference in our world. Each episode we'll be diving deeply into topics at the intersection. Sometimes we'll be interviewing thought leaders and sometimes we'll be leading deep dive conversations tackling the challenging issues of our times. So our guest on the podcast this week is Laurie Copythorne. Laurie is the founder and executive strategist of Food for Health. As a registered dietitian working in the food industry for three decades, she has led many global food and nutrition policy initiatives. Today, Laurie focuses on solving childhood hunger right here in the US. With over 50 million Americans, including 17 million children, going to bed hungry, she has launched a groundbreaking four-point plan calling for the Biden-Harris administration to think beyond the pandemic to end childhood hunger. Welcome, Laurie. Well, thank you, Jane. It's so great to be here today. Oh, I'm really looking forward to talking to you because obviously your work is in a space where, you know, it's really needed right now. And I couldn't believe those uh, figures that were in your bio. I mean, over 50 million Americans, it's just amazing. So I'm looking forward to digging into that with you. But before we do, right, our audience has just heard your professional bio. And I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about the real life human behind that bio. Who's she? Sure. No, I'd love to. It's interesting because um, I think I made my personal commitment and journey to health when I was 14 years old. And my daughter is 14 years old now. And I see her making her own personal journey in terms of a commitment to uh, her own health and interest in food and nutrition. And I go, wow, that's, you know, that was me when I was that age. And, and in fact, when I was 14, I made a commitment that every day that I would, um, uh, be healthy for myself. And I would start my day with something healthy. And so every day, since I've been 14 years old, for many years since then, I have committed to, uh, to waking up and to doing fitness, and to doing something really healthy by way of a healthy breakfast and a healthy start to my day. So it started very early in my life. And, and that sort of fed me into a path of, you know, if I could do that for myself, you know, what can I help do for others? And I've always really believed that everybody should have the opportunity to have access to safe and healthy food supply, and also to have the information available to them to be able to make the right choices. And that really helped guide me down my path uh, in my undergraduate program, when I, which I, um, I'm Canadian, so I took that at the, one of the top universities in Canada, the University of Guelph. I did my undergraduate degree. And then I felt I needed to do something more than that and that I really wanted to get the message out to the masses. And I found uh, this really interesting master's program offered through Boston University. And so I enrolled in that program. And it was funny because they told me, they said, you're too young to take this program. People, we don't accept anyone directly out of undergraduate. You have to have at least 10 years work experience to be able to be in this program. 
And then I, you know, talked to the professors and to the dean. And then they eventually let me in because they said to me, you know what? If we said no, we knew that we were going to hold you back on your life's path. And so I was the youngest and first ever um, straight from undergraduate program into the master's program, which was focused on nutrition and mass communications. And again, getting that message out to, to everybody about the importance and, what, and the difference they can make in their own lives. And then from there, I decided uh, to commit my professional side to, to the food industry and realizing that what's the, what's the biggest and best way to make a difference, and that is to help shape and reshape the food supply. And so I've been involved working for individual companies, uh, both large and small. I've worked for the government in terms of agriculture and food programs, and I've worked for national trade associations, which help set um, the international framework in terms of helping to define healthy food and getting better and safer products into the hands of consumers. So I've always had a very personal journey and interest in this area. Yeah, gosh, I mean, it sounds like it's been quite a journey. And I, you know, one of the questions that I had in my mind as you were talking was, you know, how did you go from kind of a, a, an interest in, in health and nutrition to this like what is really a much larger movement. And it sounds like your master's degree, you know, where it really brought the nutrition and mass communication together, really shaped that for you. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things is that when I worked for the food industry in Canada, in particular their National Trade Association, I, you know, had the, the privilege of being able to work on some very large um, what I call industry and consumer issues that really helped shape where I am today. And, and one being the whole matter around uh, food allergens. So we had a situation in Canada uh, in the industry where we had had a couple of really significant national food product recalls, and they were for products that had undeclared nuts on them. And we couldn't figure out what was going on because nuts were not an ingredient that was being used in those food products. But what we found is that in the processing, um, and in fact, it was on the, on the further distribution and on the conveyor belts where finished product was very, for a very short period of time crisscrossing over. And so there was some dusting of, of peanut um, uh, components that ended up in the boxes of other products. And we thought, how on earth could that have happened? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we started talking to consumers and to mothers and fathers that had lost their children to um, anaphylaxis. And that's actually a word I couldn't even spell at the time. I didn't know what anaphylaxis was. I didn't know that people could die from, from uh, peanut allergies, severe uh, nut allergies. And so we started doing closer work with them and realized like, oh my goodness, like this is serious, you know, and, and the reason we didn't know we had a problem is we couldn't actually at the time measure to parts per billion. Technology was only measuring to parts per million at the time. And so we realized that we had to completely re-engineer the, the food uh, production system in Canada to be able to resolve the issue. And so once we did that, I then took my message on the road here to the US and globally in terms of fixing uh, undeclared nuts and, and, and products, um, re-engineering the food manufacturing process, and most importantly, educating uh, consumers on a global basis about how we could make improvements. So for example, that's when nut-free products start entering the marketplace. When we started looking at may contain labeling, 
when in Canada we banned uh, nuts from airlines in Canada, as well as from schools. And so we made very significant changes um, for food and health safety for consumers. And I thought, okay, so if I could do that kind of work then, you know, and, and having moved to the US here five years ago, it was really through the pandemic where, you know, this light was being shone on what was going on during the pandemic and that there were so many people overnight that were left without jobs and the numbers climbed. So all of a sudden there were 50 million people in the US that were going to bed hungry and with 17 million of those being children. And I thought, okay, something has to change. We have to make broad systemic changes. Um, and that really is, I think, where I've decided to focus in terms of my efforts. I have the background in food nutrition. I have the background in terms of um, um, large food and agricultural systems. Can I help get that message out? Can I help be part of the solution? And so, you know, that's where I've sort of um, worked now in terms of, of taking a deep dive on that area and working on some plans that I'm out there communicating about now. Yeah. And, you know, as I'm listening to you talk, I'd, I'd never really, and although I know it on one level, I'd never really considered the fact that food can be about life and death like that. It can be dangerous, you know, and as you're talking about the nuts today, that seems so obvious, but for you to be kind of spearheading the awareness through, you know, the, the global population of consumers, I think is so very important. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that comes up for me is I just wonder, like you've come from Canada, you're coming into the US. I mean, that must be of benefit to you to actually look at this system from an outside perspective. And I just wonder, like, what do you notice here? Like, what is it that we need to kind of, what are the opportunities? What do we need to be aware of? Well, I think the biggest, uh, you know, when we think about when the pandemic started and there's sort of pandemonium out there and people are trying to wrap their minds around, you know, how do we do this and wiping down our groceries and, and mm. uh, sanitizing everything. And I'm thinking, well, from my mindset, I'm like, what? we know, we know living in Canada, we know living in the US and, and most of the developed um, countries in this world, that there is more than enough food to go around. Why can we not get the food in the hands of the people that need it? And one of the key differences between Canada and the US is that in the US, there is um, a dual distribution system of food, one that is meant for grocery retail stores, and one is which is meant for the institutions, which includes schools, because of the, um, the school lunch programs, which is a, a terrific program that they have here in the US that in fact we don't have in Canada in terms of a national uh, school lunch program put on by the, uh, the United States Department of Agriculture, USDA. So what was happening is that that food distribution system was coming to a halt, but yet we, there wasn't a way initially to be able to, to, to get that food and put it into the grocery retail chain, which is why you know, the grocery store uh, shelves were bare uh, for a number of months as you know, the, the food industry uh, was working diligently overnight to try to um, get that food supply, which is normally meant for the institutions and schools 
and, and rechannel that food, uh, redistributed that into the grocery retail. So that's a key difference I see between canned and the US, which is what really got me thinking about, you know, what is happening here? What are some of the, the key shifts that are going on? And I think for me, when just, you know, we've been in the pandemic now a year in terms of some of the key learnings. And I think that there have been, Jane, really four key shifts that have happened. And one, I think the most important thing is that the food sector is now deemed to be essential and growing. And so we've seen that they've been able to adapt um, and, and, and that they've also, I think, had unprecedented um, opportunities now in terms of increasing revenues. I think most companies through grocery retail have increased their revenues, which also means on the flip side that there's an opportunity to reinvest now in longer term in terms of sustainability. And I think that's a real plus going forward. The second shift that I've noticed is that trust is gaining. I mean, our food service, our, our retail, our restaurant workers, they are now deemed to be heroes. They have hero status in this country. And so there's increased trust in the industry. And I think that now that that also says that there's an opportunity to partner between many stakeholders because they've been out there doing it. So government and health professionals, academia uh, with the industry. And I think also on a very personal level, we've all seen that, you know, as individuals, we are rethinking our health. And so I think now Americans are ready to receive uh, new information about health and food and nutrition. And they're already starting to make those changes in their diet. So I think that's a really key and important shift. And that's different from what we've seen in the past on a broad scale. And then I think that the other shift is that there's innovation everywhere. And I think everyone has surprised themselves in terms of how they've had to adapt during the pandemic. And so that, again, I think allows for, for new technologies and uh, new innovative thinking about how can we look at and how can we do things differently going forward. So that's really a key difference that I have noticed uh, as a result of the pandemic and just a difference in terms of how the, the food system is structured here in the U.S., Mm. And one of the things that I noticed just as a consumer really is they, uh, I'll call it transparency for want of a better word, but I feel like, you know, I just need to go onto Netflix and there's so many documentaries about the food supply chain, all taking different perspectives. Sometimes it's really hard to know, you know, which source of information you can trust. And I would take that even so far as to the government with their plate that they put out, you know, that this is a good balanced, like diet for for families. And I just wondered, you know, what is it from your perspective that you feel Americans need to know as consumers? Well, I think that and my operating premise has always been that consumers have the right to know. And so that is the basis on which, even if I go back to the allergen situation, so we could have, as an industry, you know, said, and in fact, when, we, when I went out and talked to some of the countries at the time, oh, that's, so, Laurie, that's so bad. That's terrible that Canada has this problem. You know, we wish you well. No, this is a global issue, right? So, and, right. and consumers need to know, have a right to know about what is in their food. Um, and how that is made and that we have a, a, a safe food supply and that they need to have access to the right information about that. So there's a real 
initiative right now around clean labels. And by clean labels, it means, you know, saying exactly what is in the food um, and, and to what degree. And I think that consumers, when they said that they're, you know, they're ready for the information, they're ready to receive that, um, they are ready to receive it and they want to receive that information. And I think now we're seeing major shifts by the industry to be able to provide that information. You know, even many people aren't aware, but there are over 3000 food and drug regulations that govern the food industry here in North America. And, and that's at a national, uh, like a federal level, that's at a, a state level and a, at a municipal level that, that companies need to comply with. And some of those regulations say that you will state, for example, the chemical name of a product, uh, of an ingredient in a product. And so instead of being able to list it as vitamin C, you have to put it down as ascorbic acid, as an example. But mm. consumers are saying, well, what's ascorbic acid? Well, it's vitamin C. So now there's a shift in terms of clean labeling as well, which is a real positive for the industry that they are actually allowed to, to say them in what I was going to call the common name and what consumers would know these ingredients at. And so that's a shift that we're seeing. And technology is also where, you know, you have smart labels now and that you can scan your product on your personal device and find out instantly what are the ingredients in that product? You know, how much is it providing by the way of macronutrients? So how many calories, how much is that as fat, uh, sugar, um, protein, and to be able to make your decisions based on that. And how does that fit into your own personal healthy diet? Mm. Yeah, I love that. And it's really empowering consumers from what you're saying to, you know, really take this into their own hands so that they, they are empowered to, to eat healthy if they really know what's in their food. So I get that. Now you asked a question, right? Well, towards the beginning of our conversation today, and I'm going to ask it back to you sure. <laughs> because you said, you know, um, that there's more than enough food to go around. Why can't we get food into the hands of people who need it? So why can't we? <laughs> well, just even when I take a look, let's just step back just one. Um, there is some new information out today from the World Bank. And, I, and they said that COVID has pushed an additional 130 million people into hunger. <gasps> yeah. Wow. And one third of all food that is produced globally is wasted. And on a, a global basis, 570 million farms feed 8 billion consumers on a global basis. Wow. So if you, like, if you just sit with those numbers, and for me, the biggest one is that one third of all food produced globally is wasted. Yeah. And that's a big part of why we can't get food into every American's home and on their dinner plate that's accessible, that is affordable, that is healthy and nutritious. And I think that that is something where every person could call to action in terms of what they can do to reduce their own food waste. And the industry through the restaurant industry and grocery and manufacturers are really stepping up right now in terms of how to redirect. So as food is approaching its best before date 
and where many consumers are not willing to purchase that, how can we get that redirected in other channels and into the food bank system and into the hands of, of and people that really need that food? And I think that if there are some images coming out from the pandemic, some of the images that have seared my mind are the lineups for the food banks mm. to get access to water. This is in the United States of America and to get enough food to feed their families for the day, for the week, for the month. Um, and the new administration has, you know, really quickly come on board to up the COVID relief fund to put more dollars through their SNAP program into the hands of Americans. So I think there's some immediate relief that's happening, thank goodness. But I think as all of us as individual consumers and households, we need to really be mindful of what food that we have and what we are doing to maximize that and to minimize our waste. And to think about what we can do in our own communities to make sure that you know we can help distribute that food to the people in most need. Yeah. And and during COVID, that is our neighbors, you know, people that have typically not had to rely on uh, the food bank system have to rely on that these days. They lost their jobs overnight. And I think mm -hmm. we can all relate to people that are no longer have jobs and they might not have jobs going in forward in the immediate future due to COVID. Mm. And so that to me is the real need and we need to address that. And then bigger than that are these systemic changes. And, and that's kind of where, you know, my space that I like to work in is seeing if we can work on the bigger plan. We have an immediate need in terms of, of the pandemic getting food on plates, and but then we have a bigger opportunity. I think the silver lining is to step back and go, what else needs to happen at a national level? Yeah. You know, and as, I, as I'm listening to you, uh, it, it sounds very simple to just think of this as a, say, like a, a distribution problem. But my sense is after working systemically with a number of different organizations around the world, I realize there's probably more complexity to it than that. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I just wondered, like, is it realistic to think that we could have a different system? Oh, I think absolutely. And I think, you know, this is where I've spent my time in terms of looking at developing a four point plan. So we have the immediacy of the pandemic, but the silver lining in all of that is, okay, we know that the industry has been able to change on a dime. We are getting more food into the, the hands of Americans. So what can we learn from that? What's the takeaway? And what can we do better going forward, knowing that there is a readiness by consumers and that there's a readiness, I believe, by government and the new administration, and there's a readiness by industry and other stakeholders. And so one of the things that I am personally calling for is that we establish leadership at the highest level in this country that can bring together all these stakeholders 
with the focus on fixing the current food system going forward and putting an end to childhood hunger. So that's first and foremost to me that we've acquired the highest leadership possible. The second one, and going back to the differences between Canada and the US and even some of the uh, other countries, for example, the EU, one of the things that the US um, currently does not have is a national food policy. So there are a number of different government agencies that have a mandate around food. So the Food and Drug Administration, um, the United States Department of Agriculture, USDA, National Institute of Health, um, the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency. So they all have a stake in the food, in food. But what the US does not have, which is surprising to me, is a national food policy. So the EU has a relatively new one, which is their farm to fork policy. And Canada also has a national food policy. And what that does is it's one-stop shopping. It brings all of the policy together. And that way it can really be a no-brainer in terms of what do we need to do, not just from you know, the agri-food side of things, but what do we need to do from a health standpoint, a food, a food safety, as well as sustainability. And if we bring that all together and look at it in a collective, because it really is a collective system, then that way going forward, you know, we can have policies in that that are holistic in nature. So I think that's very important going forward. The third one is the fact that we need one voice out there in terms of really strong unified communications um, to consumers. So that there's one message going forward. And it's always disheartening when there's when there's different types of messages out there and and with so much available on social media that you know may or may not be trustworthy information or from trusted sources. So it's really important to have a single voice out there. And the last thing, and the real opportunity for the US, I think, is to reclaim its leadership role in the global food systems. And that is through the incredible work that the United Nations is doing around its sustainable development goals and with SDGs for short. But I think there's a real opportunity there for, for the US to add to you know, the urgency around this, the vision, strategy, um, global unity, and setting some priorities here. Mm-hmm. And as you as you kind of you know lay out your four point plan, it all sounds very reasonable to me. Um, and you know, and I know, I mean, you can tell just by the figures that you're quoting how much of a need this is for people to not go hungry. And and yet, when I think about implementing, you know, actually getting the people together to implement, I I wonder why it it. Because part of me thinks, oh, gosh, that would be challenging to get those different government entities together and get them all like unified and integrated. But then on the other side of it, I'm thinking, why does it need to be that hard (laughs) really (laughs) to do? You know, it's almost like I flip flop between the two. And I just wondered what your take is on that. I mean, is this something that, you know, is going to be a challenge to do or is this something that if we could just get the right people in one room we'd we'd easily get to kind of one mandate for a a a, a plan or a national food policy for the U.S. Well I do think that what's different now is that there's so many different stakeholders 
delivering the same message that we need to fix the food system. So I do believe there's a readiness, which is different mm. than we've seen before. So I think it's, you know, it's top down, but it's also bottom up. So we need the, you know, the grassroots initiatives coming up. And we also need the leadership from above to bring all of this together um, and to make sure that we are on the same page. And I think, you know, what I think what's happened is it's, you know, these types of things are never intentional. They've evolved over time. So I can tell you like from the Canadian experience. So if you have a, a piece of legislation, a piece of legislation can take about a decade <laughs> to get <Right>. into place. <laughs> And then if you want to change it, you're like, oh, you know, that takes 10 years. So what you end up doing is you will make regulatory amendments to that piece of legislation. And so that helps keep that legislation current and how that is enforced current. But then, you know, if that goes on for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, then you're like, oh, well, that's why we have all these different agencies involved now. And they all have a different piece of the pie because as the regulations were added to further interpret the legislation that kind of directed that. And, and, and then also you end up where we are today and you go, Oh, okay. That doesn't make sense. Can we not bring this all back together and to serve the original intention mm -hmm. and then, and put it under one house or one roof, which would be under a single food policy. And then mm -hmm. from there, everything else can flow and make more sense logically. And I think even, you know, for, for entrepreneurs and that, that are out there to be able to do a, a single stop uh, shopping, so to speak, when, when you're coming out and, and with new product ideas or whatever, it would just make it so much easier uh, and straightforward. And obviously for the consumer as well, to know that there is a single food policy governing the food supply in this country would be tremendous. Hmm. I think and what, there's a willingness and I think that's the silver lining um, that's coming out of, uh, of uh, the pandemic, but I, it will take time. I think people are still in the trenches right now in terms of, you know, how do we get food on tables and, um, and then from there, you know, now, how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? Yeah. And it's, di I mean, this conversation we're having is in some ways directly linked to the origin of the pandemic as well, because I was reading some of the uh, British press at the weekend, and there's a big call in, in the United Kingdom particularly, but I think it's also shared by some other European countries that, you know, we do need a global food policy now, because obviously it was the cross-contamination in Wuhan that actually allowed the COVID to actually jump from animals to humans, or that's one of the theories anyway. So this idea of not just having national policies, but a global approach to food also seems like it's coming and becoming more visible now and, and people are becoming more aware of it. Is that your experience? Yes, and in fact, there is uh, an international, it's called Codex Alimentaris. And that stands for food law, uh, food code. And so that exists today and that is under the WTO. And so that ensures that there is global food policy through global food regulations. So for example, mm -hmm. when I talked about the food allergens that we want a global approach to that, we went forward and advocated for that change on a global basis through Codex Elementaris. So there actually is a body in place um, mm -hmm. that focuses their efforts on 
establishing those global policies. But absolutely, if we could move in that direction of a global food policy, because you know this is a global food um, supply chain, this and this is one of the reasons that we're, you know we've experienced. I'm going to call some of the, the droughts and getting the, the food uh, where we need it to also is because some of the food products are coming internationally, uh, which also speaks to the need too for food sovereignty on the flip side, we've learned, um, and to make sure that we um, have always have the ability to produce our own food, but then to enhance and, and to enrich that from other sources as well. Mm. So absolutely, Jane, you know, a global food policy, I think that would be a dream come true. Yeah. And so I'm going to bring us right back down now to consumer level, because I have a question. <laughs> um, and I know that a, a lot of, you know, the hunger issues um, in America and, well, particularly in the modern world, let's call it that way, um, is, is due to like lack of access, lack of money. And one of the things I've never quite wrapped my head around is uh, and, and this is a conversation I've had with some of my colleagues and family members and friends is, you know, there, there's, there's an appetite for uh, eating healthier. But why is it always so much more expensive to have a healthy diet than it is to have, say, a convenient diet? And, you know, it's an, yeah, I, never, I, I haven't figured that one out. <laughs> but, you know, and we take a look at some of the... Um, poorest areas here in the US where there are food deserts mm. and you just they simply cannot get access to healthy affordable food mm. it doesn't make any sense to me and then we have other areas which i just heard a term the other day that someone referred to as or actually it was today food swamps you know so you have you know where there's too much food and then not enough food and not enough access um, because they don't necessarily have the, the grocery retail stores the access to the fresh food. That's something that absolutely needs to be a priority. And we also know that in terms of socioeconomic status, for people that um, have less money, that they have higher levels of chronic diseases. So they are not eating as healthy. And the National Institute of Health put out this at the end of last year, new statistics here for the US in which 60% of Americans are suffering from a chronic disease such as heart disease, diabetes, cancer that are diet related diseases. 60% means there are more Americans that are sick than well. Gosh. Let that resonate. And 40% yeah. of those individuals, Jane, have two or more chronic diseases. And what we know because of the pandemic is that they are suffering the worst from coronavirus and they have the highest mortality rates than others. And so this is what the pandemic has done. It has shone a light on the double burn of not just childhood hunger, but of obesity and overweight and the impact of chronic diseases on health. And this is why it's doubly important 
that we address the food supply and the health of it. I, I do not understand myself as someone in this industry, why less healthy food is cheaper than healthier food. And that is something that has to change. And so there has mm -hmm. to be access then to affordable, healthy, nutritious food supply for all. And that's what also a national food policy would help address. Mm. And that sounds, I mean, so important to me because I, I, you know, I think about, well, my, my daughter, um, she's, uh, she's just had a baby and, uh, and her baby's now, she's, she's about 18 months old, but she, um, as a single mom, um, didn't have like she's low income and she didn't have uh, like a lot of resources um, to support her and um, she actually wanted to be very independent and she kind of moved into this place of support in our local community and there were some amazing initiatives to really make sure that not only was my daughter okay but my granddaughter as well when she was born that for the first year of her life you know they would make sure that the food supply was there. She was healthy. She was getting the medical that she needed, mm -hmm. but it's still been a challenge for my daughter to realize that, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging to get the right information about food. And my daughter's a bit, um, like she's she's into holistic health and different things and she came to me recently and said mom I've heard that food can be medicine <laughs> right <laughs> and I was like well yeah and so I know a little bit about it not much it's just a hobby of mine but I'd love to know what your sense is of you know is it that if we get the food supply chain right if we get people mm -hmm. eating healthily will that then kind of start to clear up some of the the medical issues some of the illnesses some of the obesity all these knock-on effects that happen in society that that let's say keep people poor or poorer than they need to be will these will the food chain like it seems to me that so many things in our society point back to food and diet and access and equality, those kinds of things. And there's been racial discrimination in our food yeah. supply. Yeah. Um, we need diversity. Yeah. And that's when we talked about top down and bottom up. Yeah. You know, when I think about even when I was growing up in the school system, we had home economics. And so we learned about the importance of food and health and nutrition and what that meant for a healthy diet and what that meant for our well-being. Well, that profession doesn't exist anymore. So mm. that's not by the wayside. And so, um, you know, consumers are, you know, going out there and it's not necessarily trusted source information. I'm a registered dietitian. And uh, it's funny because my 14-year-old thinks that she can get better sounder information on nutrition on TikTok. <laughs> what do I know? And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, so we have these conversations at the dinner table on a nightly basis, you know, in terms of 
food and health and nutrition and what's important at this point in her life in terms of being a 14 year old and mm-hmm. the pressures that social media have on, on young girls. And, you know, and, and she's very athletic. And so, you know, what is a good um, source of nutrients for her? And what does she knew that might be different from what I need or her father needs or even some of her classmates. And so we have this dialogue and this on a nightly basis in terms of around food nutrition. And so I think for consumers, it means, you know, really um, going out there and looking for those trusted sources of information. So, you know, registered dietitian, registered nutritionist, like those are the people that we have studied, like in order for us to, we need a degree, not just an undergraduate, we need a master's degree, or we um, have to be a, a clinical internship. And so going to those proper sources, what's interesting is that actually today is National Dietitian's Day in Canada, <laughs> apropos that we're speaking here uh, on the call. And last week was for the US and, and March is International Nutrition Month. And so this is a very timely time to be talking about um, the importance of food, nutrition and health. And I've always seen, you know, there be a continuum between uh, food and um, I'm going to call drugs, and then the, in the middle, the the herbs botanicals. And so along that continuum is, is where you can get um, certain health benefits or medicinal benefits. And so for me, my insurance policy has always been leaning more on the continuum towards how can I get that from my food sources? Mm-hmm. So I'm always looking at, and the best advice is, eat in moderation and eat a variety of, um, of fresh fruits and vegetables and from the, the other um, three food groups to make sure you do have that variety out there. And I think that's most important. And listen to your body, you know, what is it saying? If, if you know what, if you've reached satiety, you know what, stop eating, you know? And, um, and if you're hungry, then eat, eat the amount that that's needed for your body. And I think if you listen to your body, if you're in tune to what its needs are, that um, you can help achieve that balance for you. And the other thing about, we talked earlier about technology, but I think really the way of the future is actually going to be less about, you know, national dietary guidance, but more about personalized Mm. nutrition and where the guidance now Um, And the National Institute of Nutrition here in the U.S. is very much working on that as a priority in terms of their blueprint for 2030. And that is how do we get in a situation knowing that everyone has individual needs? What is the best nutrition for each individual? And I think it's the personalized nutrition. And so for your daughter, for my daughter, um, for, for everyone, there will be that opportunity in the very near future to find out what are your individual nutrition needs and how can you best meet those? Yeah. And I absolutely agree because um, I can't remember if I mentioned this to you, but when I lived in California, the yeah. land, the, the state where everything seems to start, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I actually um, invested myself in a personal nutrition kit to actually have a look at what I needed specifically. But I can see how that is out of the reach of a, a, a lot of the population because it was actually quite expensive to to get that done. But, you know, listening to you talk, I was also reminded of a conversation I had with my son recently, which 
Um, he's 19 and about to leave for college if the pandemic allows. And um, he was saying to me, you know, mom, he said, I think I've learned everything I know about food. He said, from you and the family, but really from advertisements, because he has what I would call a normal American diet, which is different to what I would call a normal British diet. Um, <laughs> and um, it's interesting because he said, well, I, I don't really know. Like, it's like he hasn't been, just like you were saying, home economics isn't in schools anymore. Mm -hmm. And he's come from the age of seven through the American school system. So hasn't really learned anything. And it's almost like there's so many different elements of this. Like we need to be educating children so that they grow up into adults that are aware and understand and know which food, which sources to trust and not just listen to the marketing that, you know, when there's a gap in, in, in information in today's like technological world that gets filled with marketing and, you know, advertisements for all kinds of different foods and I also remember having a conversation with my daughter who, who's had my grandchild and um, saying to her you know what are your plans for uh, the little girl's called Phoebe what are your plans for Phoebe going forward because in terms of food because in her first year of life she was kind of giving her things to nibble on while she was teething and different things and I said well now she's getting a bit older you don't want her to get into an emotional eating pattern and again like every time she's feeling like grumbly you give her something to put in her mouth <laughs> so it's these kinds of things that I've been realizing watching my daughter that's been missing from her education as well there's so many aspects to this it feels like Laurie it really and does and it's so personal food yeah. is personal. food is emotional food yeah. is moral. um you know food is everything and because even coming back to your son, I also think another opportunity that we saw in the pandemic, I don't know if you know this or not, but there was a shortage of seeds in the U.S. during oh. the pandemic. So people knowing that they couldn't get stuff, um, food from the shelves, were quickly turning to um, seeds and seed manufacturers to, to grow their own seedlings and plant their own gardens or a lot of community gardens were sprouting up all around the United States, which I think is tremendous mm. because that also provides the opportunity with our children or grandchildren yeah. or within the community to help teach children where our food comes from. Yeah. Um, I ha happen to live in a part of the U.S. where chickens run freely oh, wow. <laughs> around here and they're usually on my front lawn which is interesting for a, a subdivision and uh it's just wonderful that i see so many people embracing um you know food and where its its origins are and growing their own food mm. and community gardens that are starting here at the public school and with the um, the high school has a community garden here and they're helping to feed neighbors and oftentimes I'll see people have these beautiful gardens vegetable gardens in their front yard and they have signs up which is I'm growing this for the community help yourself so wouldn't yeah. it be wonderful if, if all of all communities could embrace that? And that would also help address, you know, some of these food deserts that we are seeing in some of the low income areas mm. in major cities across the U.S. Uh, and if we could see more and more of that happening and then people could be connected to food at its roots, no pun intended, mm. but 
getting in there and getting your hands dirty with the soil and planting your own food. And, and I think the further you get away from rural communities, the further you get away from, you know, where does our food come from? How's it grown? Who touches yeah. it along the way? Um, and, uh, and, and if you get that, if you're too distanced from it, uh, it means you don't really completely understand the value um, of fresh um, um, fruits and vegetables and, and other stuff that you can consume um, probably in their less processed state. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think, you know, and I don't know how many people are walking around like myself, you know, with our sourdough starter kits these days. <laughs> and so my daughter and I have, you know, we've, we've done all this. We've been doing our seedlings and we had such an incredible crop of tomatoes last year. I think we turned, I think it was 60 pounds of tomatoes uh, into tomato sauce. And oh, wow stews and other dishes that we um, will continue to have uh, well into the summer. So, you know, we've, uh, we've made everything that we could from that came from our garden. So I think the more people can be connected and get your hands dirty, right? Plant the yeah. Like, you know, and you can do it in planters. It doesn't have to, you don't have to have a, a large yard. You can do it on your balcony and just be more connected to food and the importance it plays in your health. And I think that would just be a big step forward to improving the health of individuals in this nation. Mm, I think that, I think you're so right. I really do. Oh my gosh, what a vision for our future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, Laurie, I'm just noticing the time. So let me ask you one final question. Um, if there's anything you'd like to have got to today that you'd want to share with our audience, what might it be? On a very personal level, I just think that if, if every person out there could make their own commitment to health and nutrition and their well-being, they would be so much better off um, to live, you know, a happy, healthy life. And I think the pandemic has really taught all of us the importance of protecting and investing in our own health. And I think for me personally, and for me professionally, um, I think that would be tremendous. And that would mm. be a tremendous step forward for everybody. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Laurie. Gosh, I have really enjoyed our conversation today. I've learned a lot, actually. So thank you so much. And I know our listeners will have learned so much as well from you. So thank you. Thank you, Jane. Appreciate the opportunity. Okay, guys, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for listening in. But before we go, I want to remind you that all the resources and links for our guests are in the show notes at sacredchangemakers.com. And our growing community of changemakers are actually our sponsors who help us to keep doing our work in the world. We're a network of people committed to making the world a better place. We support each other to grow personally and professionally, and together we're making a direct impact aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, all visible on our website. So if you're interested, I invite you to take a look. It's time to build a bridge from what you want in life to include what the world needs from you. Together, we can make a meaningful difference. Again, you can find us at sacredchangemakers.com. And if our episode resonated with you today, I hope you'll consider joining us. So for now, I just want to say thank you.
Thank you for listening. Thank you for your intentions and efforts to make our world a better place. Until next time, lots of love.